I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now picture this, you're sitting in your car, mindlessly staring off in the distance when a memory from your childhood pops into your mind. Could be anything, Christmas, playing catch with your dad, whatever. Initially, thinking about this memory makes you feel pretty happy, but then you start feeling kind of sad. If you experience that feeling of happiness tinged with sadness when remembering something, you've experienced nostalgia. My guest today is a psychologist who has spent his career researching this oft-overlooked emotion. His name is Clay Rutledge, and he's a professor of psychology at the North Dakota State University. And today on the show, Clay takes us deep into the psychology of nostalgia. We begin by discussing what exactly nostalgia is, what it feels like, and what induces nostalgic feelings. Clay then delves into the benefits of nostalgia, such as alleviating depression and loneliness and providing meaning in your life. We then get into the downsides of nostalgia, trying to feel nostalgic too much and how to avoid that. We end our conversation discussing why we can feel nostalgic for time periods we didn't even experience ourselves and the possible benefits of that type of nostalgia. After the show's over, you'll be wanting to bust out old photo albums to take a trip down memory lane. And after you've done that, check out our show notes at aom.io slash nostalgia. Clay Rutledge, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you're a psychologist who has spent a lot of time researching nostalgia, which is, you know, you don't see a lot of papers about nostalgia. You see a lot about like the big five, right? Or things like that. But so what got you researching the psychology of nostalgia? So when I was in graduate school, I was really more broadly interested in how humans navigate time. What I mean by that is compared to other animals, we have this unique capacity for temporal thought. So we can think about the past, we can think about the future, we can run different sorts of simulations about these different points in time. And so I was just broadly interested in you know the implications of being an animal that has to grapple with the awareness of time. And in fact, most of my work, or a lot of it, I should say, has focused on the ability to think about the future and the implications of that, um, especially the existential implications of being able to think about um, future mortality. And so when I was in graduate school doing this work, I was actually working on a chapter for a book on temporal consciousness with my PhD advisor. And we started toying around with how people use the past, you know, how they reflect on the past, which we do in many ways, of course. But what seemed really interesting to us was this possibility that 
people have this ability to think about the future and that can be exciting, of course, because we can think about goals and things we're looking forward to, but it can also be threatening because it's a reminder of our vulnerability and, and frailty. And so then we started thinking, well, maybe people actually turn to the past as a way to combat some of their insecurities and worries about the future. And, and particularly, that they, you know, they might bring to mind nostalgic memories that make them feel warm and safe and meaningful as a way to cope with some of their anxieties about future concerns. And so really that, you know, that's how I got into it was not just a fixation on nostalgia, but just more broadly how people kind of deal with being um, temporal and, and ultimately existential animals. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that idea of uh, thinking about our temporal future, but let's talk about this nostalgia. All right. So I think we've, we, we all can describe nostalgia. We've all experienced it. So in your research, how how do you guys describe nostalgia? Because with, with psychology, you have, to get really, you have to get more precise besides just, oh, I have this like fond memory. So what exactly, how do you describe nostalgia and how is it different from, say, just remembering any other memory from your past? That's an excellent uh, distinction because when we first started doing this, you know, we actually wanted to see if our you know, kind of more theoretical or scholarly conception of nostalgia did in fact align with more lay, you know, conceptions of nostalgia. And, you know, and this you know, becomes important for a number of reasons, but, you know, the dictionary definition to start is that nostalgia is a sentimental or wistful longing for the past. And when we look at nostalgia, we often define it in that way. So in some of the studies we've done, for example, we provide, if we're going to ask people to bring to mind and detail in a nostalgic memory, we often provide them with that dictionary definition beforehand just to get, you know, just to get a sense that, you know, everyone kind of knows where we're coming from. But we've also, you know, you know done a number of studies looking at lay or you know just more common conceptions of nostalgia and they converge quite nicely with this more scholarly approach and in a nutshell i would say the, the consensus um, seems to be that um, nostalgic memories are these are these memories that people find particularly uh, meaningful or sentimental and what distinguishes them from from more ordinary memories seems to be that, that potency of meaning. So you can ask people, for example, to say, hey, think about a, a happy memory or positive memory or sad memory or an ordinary memory from your past. And they'll, sometimes they'll bring to mind a memory that would also you know, constitute nostalgia. Um, they can distinguish the two. And you can find distinctions when you, have, when you, you know, more surgically tell people to specifically think of a nostalgic memory, it does something a little bit different than if you just say, hey, think about a happier or pleasant memory. Yeah. I think one of the ways you found a lot of people describing is like, it's feeling both sad and happy about the memory. Yeah. 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 So that's a good point because if you say, just think of a happy memory or a positive memory, uh, a lot of times that'll be somewhat superficially positive. So you can imagine, you know, lots of things just being positive memories. Like, oh, I went to the movies or I ate a piece of cake. Um, but what seems to distinguish nostalgia in part is this more um, what we call emotional ambivalence, which is there's this tinge of sadness or loss. And that's part of what I think makes nostalgia 
memories special is they're not just ordinary, everyday, happy events, right? There might be little things that you enjoy every day, but nostalgia seems to be more of those momentous or meaningful memories. And oftentimes, you know, the people, you know, don't, don't really think about this. A lot of times these more meaningful memories have this, this tinge of, uh, of negative affect or negative emotion in them because they're so special um, because, you know, meaningful memories are often complex and because, you know, when we think about them, we're, we're aware of that, you know, that sense of how these are, these are rare, kind of special events. Right. And then also, I mean, the word nostalgia, it comes from Greek, which meant homesickness. So you're kind of feeling like this longing for home, which could be the past in this case. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is this, it, there is this sense of, you know, something that you're, that you're longing or, you know, that you're longing for, as opposed to just something that is just more kind of superficially, like uh, transiently pleasurable. Right. Yeah. You talked to you about the history of nostalgia. There was a time in sort of the history of psychology where nostalgia was seen as a sickness. Like that's not a good thing to have. Was it because they didn't really fine tune nostalgia and they were just, they were, you know, conflating it with some other, like, just like a, a sadness? I mean, what was going on? Why did they think nostalgia was bad at some point in the history of psychology? So there's a couple of possibilities. I mean, you know, to start, it's a little bit difficult often to do these sort of historical analyses because you know we're not there and we don't know exactly so we're you're know, doing almost like a forensic sort of analysis of text and you know writing and what we think you know people were, were were thinking at the time but there seems to be a couple possibilities that you touched on one and that is that you know there was just an oversimplification of this idea of homesickness and so what people were doing is they were conflating the these negative emotional and distressing you know feelings that people were having that might have actually you know I'm sure we'll touch on this later might have actually triggered or instigated nostalgia as a coping resource you know conflating that with the actual nostalgia memory which might actually have been the response to those to those negative states. So that's, you know, that's one possibility is, you know, in modern science, we would, you know, we use words like the difference between correlation and, and causation, for instance, are these negative feelings correlated with nostalgia? Um, and is that why we, you know, that's why they conflated the two. In addition to that, you know, a, a second possibility is that over time we have started to change the definition of what nostalgia is and that we started to ourselves distinguish it from homesickness now what i you know even if that's true and you know that could be part of the picture i would i would just note that that doesn't mean nostalgia is a new or recent phenomenon it just means that we have developed new language or we are we are approaching it conceptually differently i mean i think there's there's no reason to believe that nostalgia as we commonly think of it now is something that's emerged in you know in recent decades you know as long as our species has been an animal that grapples with with the awareness of time and and concerns about meaning i suspect we've always 
been nostalgic. So nostalgia is sort of a wistfulness of happy memories, meaningful memories. What is like what is the content of nostalgic thoughts? I mean, is it pretty much the same uh, in your that you've seen things pop up over and over again in your relation in your in your research? Yes, it is. So, and and in fact, there's been some you know some studies in recent years really looking cross culturally at different nations and age groups, uh, different parts of the world, suggesting that there is a, a common theme of nostalgia or common characteristics that you know populate nostalgic memories, and they include. Um, a heavy emphasis on social bonds or relationships. So certainly you could have nostalgic memories that are more solitary, that are you doing you know, something completely by yourself, but that would be more atypical than, than a social memory that involves close others, friends, family, romantic partners. Um, so the sociality of nostalgia seems really, really big. Also, we find that nostalgia often contains what you know people refer to as momentous life events. So you can be nostalgic for anything, of course, even very you know even things that other people might find trivial, you might find momentous. But you do see these common cultural themes about rites of passage, like graduation, you know, kind of religious traditions. And getting married, for instance, having children, and you also see themes related to holidays or you know these kind of cultural rituals are are big. And of course, a lot of these things also implicate the social nature that I just touched on. So momentous life events seem to be a big part of it, and also a self focus. And and what I mean by that is. Nostalgic memories, at least when we talk about personal n- nostalgia, um, are, th- are seen through the lens of you as the protagonist, right? These are your memories, right? So you're, the self plays a central role in them, which doesn't take away from the sh- social aspect. I mean, people tend to see social versus self as being in opposition, but that's not true at all because a lot of the, a lot of the things we do in life, of course, involve us thinking about our primary role in them, but they still implicate relationships. And finally, I would say um, nostalgic memories are sort of populated by this, what we call a redemptive sequence, you know, events that have a a redemptive sequence. And so that's where the negative and positive elements come in a little bit more is that a lot of times nostalgic memories involve some sort of hardship or loss or pain or difficulty or uncertainty that is subsequently that you subsequently triumph over, and so they're really kind of these redemptive stories, which again kind of distinguishes them from other other memories. So you said you mentioned that uh, the content of our nostalgic thoughts are, are there's a lot of relationships and the self, but like what happened? What's going on when people are nostalgic? for a period of time that they didn't even exist, right? Like people like, I watch, you know, It's a Wonderful Life. And you're like, oh, I wish I could go back to then and when and live in fictional Bedford Falls when everything was great. Um, <laughs> and you, you, it's the same sort of nostalgic feeling that I have when I think about my own childhood. So what's going on there when you're nostalgic for an era that you didn't even experience yourself? So... One thing to you know to start with is that I think it's important to distinguish um, a, a lot of what I've been talking about, which we would call personal nostalgia, from what you're now referencing, which we would call historical 
nostalgia. And the two can have some some overlap and, and, and we can get into that. But, you know, a lot of the research we've done has been on these like personal memories that um, are from your own life experiences. So there is this other phenomenon of historical nostalgia, which is exactly what you know, which is an affinity towards some aspects or periods of the past that, you know, may have been long before you were ever born. And I, you know, and I certainly think there is some something about that that's, that's distinct, but I also think it, it sort of builds on the same psychological scaffolding as personal nostalgia for, you know, just for, uh, you know, a quick example, you can imagine, um, you know, like you said, being nostalgic for, for, the, for certain movies or ideas that were long before you were born. But if you extract the themes out of, out of that, they might connect in meaningful ways to your own to your own life experiences. And the way you became introduced to those uh, historical ideas might have important personal connections as well. So I know that I have some nostalgia for, for older movies that I experienced for the first time with either, you know, older relatives or, or my father. And so there is still this connection to my own personal life experiences, but they were introduced to me um, these older ideas were introduced to me by people that I, you know, people from my own life. And, you know, an interesting possibility is that these forms of historical nostalgia are part of what connect us culturally across time and our ability to weave these into our own personal memories and personal life narratives might help be, you know, part of what connects us to to older generations. I think, you know, another good example of this seems a little... A little abstract is like my son who wasn't born until 2001 has a lot of interest in movies from the 1980s and so we've you know particularly kind of action you know the action movie genre so i've shown him everything from rambo to terminator to you know to aliens to to Rocky, to the Rocky movies, and all, all these action movies, Predator, you know, all these action movies from the 80s that were way before he was born. And he really, really likes them. And there are themes that are just enduring that, you know, a lot of teenage boys like violent action movies. But I have no doubt, too, that part of that will be a connection with me. As he gets older, he, you know, he'll be thinking, well, I got to watch that stuff with my dad, and that was, uh, uh, and that was really cool. So I do think there is this blending between the historical and the personal, if, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Cause like I, I'm all, I often get nostalgic for like the world war two era. And that's probably because both my grandfathers fought in world war two. And so as a kid, they showed me their pictures from the war. That was my, so that's my connection to that era. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And you know, and also a lot of, tri- you know, just kind of fashion, either fashion trends or certain, um, certain ideas that you might, you might like the the uh, the peak time of those ideas might have been you know in times past before you were born and so you know that can be part of it too is you just happen to have a particular hobby or a particular area of interest like say you're interested in muscle cars for whatever reason you might say well there was a period that was sort of the peak for that time but my guess is a lot of times and certainly not always i'm sure but my guess is a lot of times if you dug a little bit deeper you would find a a personal link. So maybe you, your dad had a muscle car 
and you just thought that was really cool like he was the greatest like or he showed like you said he showed you picture you know you, your grandparents or somebody showed you pictures from they were from when they were young so i think a lot of times even though we feel sort of disconnected personally from historical events there is a real family or social connection somewhere you know somewhere beneath beneath the surface so you've done research and found that nostalgia is, is something that's not just unique to people living in Western industrialized countries. It's it's cross-cultural. You also did research on sort of trying to figure out how we feel nostalgically at different times in our life. I'm curious, are there certain points in our life where we feel more nostalgic or less nostalgic? So this is a question that certainly needs a lot more data to be appropriately answered. We do have, you know, one, you know, one data set that provides some suggestive hints. Now, let me start by saying the differences between age groups aren't large. So what we find is in in general across across age, people are nostalgic. There are individual differences, you know, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that because there is kind of a personality trait related to nostalgia. But people of all ages seem to regularly engage in nostalgia. Now that being said, you know, uh, you know I was hinting at this potential interesting small difference. We have some preliminary evidence that nostalgia may you know, be higher among um, young adults and then you know so people in their 20s for instance and then kind of start to decrease slightly in middle age and then begin to increase in, again as people get older. And, and one possibility, and I, you know, I say this with caution because we don't know for sure, one possibility is that this is somehow mapping on to you know, kind of normal trends um, across the life kind of lifespan trends. And so what I mean by that is when you're a young adult, you have a lot of uncertainty, right? You're trying to figure out what to do. You're trying to you know, potentially find a mate, become more of an adult and you know, be independent. And with that uncertainty might provoke a more longing for nostalgia as a way to you know, kind of regulate these, you know, these experiences. Now, once you settle into middle age, and again, this is just a simplification, um, people differ, obviously, you might expect more of a period of stability, right? You have a job, you have a career, you're doing your thing, you have a family, you're, you know, you're just plugging away. And so you might need nostalgia less. And then as you start to get a little bit older, you're starting to have life transitions again, either it's retirement or, you know, of course, eventually people start to, you start to lose family members and parents and, and friends. Um, there are other experiences in life as you, as you get old in terms of declining, declining health. So that's just one possibility is that trends in nostalgia across age somehow follow trend, general lifespan trends and what we would call discontinuity. Yeah. I can see that. Like in my own, this is anecdotal. This is, I'm throwing in some anecdotal evidence into the, the mix here. But like, yeah, I read as, a, as a young adult, I'd get really, like the Christmas spirit, right? It's very nostalgic. Uh, now as like, I'm a 30 something dad who have kids. Like I, don't, like, I don't feel that much 
at the holidays and you're like, oh, I just got to get through this because there's a <laughs> lot to do. Yeah. Um, and I always try to like, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to recapture that feeling somehow and I never can. Yeah. Um, so I guess I have to wait until I'm in my sixties or seventies. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, it get, and that's a good anecdote. Um, and I, you know, I think there's truth to that, but what I would also add is, and the reason I think these trends might be really, really small of, is because, of course, anytime you just look broadly and say something as broad as across the lifespan, within that is a whole host of different experiences that are you know completely diverse. And so, just as you might say, well, these are general general cohort trends, you would also predict using that same um, that same reasoning that. As any individual personally experiences distress or discontinuity or change in life, they, you know, might um, ratchet up their own nostalgia. So, for instance, you can imagine, you know, being 40 and saying, hey, you know, I'm actually a lot more nostalgic than maybe I would have been because I just got a divorce or I just, you know, or I just lost a parent or, or something like that. And it's triggered this, this compensatory effort to revisit meaningful past memories and, you know, to reflect on these things that give me some sense of, of stability that I know who I am. So I think it's definitely more surgical to focus on the individual level than it is the, the broader cohort level. But still, that that lifespan piece, I think, is is interesting. And there's some, and it might help us understand some general trends, you know, across age. So you've kind of been referencing this throughout while you were talking, explain, giving your answers, but like, why do we experience nostalgia, right? Like, there's, re, you know, we know, kind of have an idea of why we experience happiness, why we experience sadness. So why do we have this feeling of sort of mixed sadness and happiness for the past? What do you think is going on there based on your research? Based on my research, well, first I'll say that, you know, nostalgia is compared to happiness and sadness. It's what we call a a complex, self-relevant emotion. So it's not just a simple, you know, simple positive or negative affect that's, you know, as we've discussed, it has this more, um, com- you know, ambig- you know, ambivalent and complex signature, emotional signature. And what, you know, what we found is there, there seems to be at least two general classes of what we'd call triggers of nostalgia or reasons that people become nostalgic. One is just kind of simple, sen- what we call sensory inputs, which, and these are just the reminders of the past that you experience. So, certain times of year you might get that you know experience the sensation of all oh, the weather's changing and i'm starting and all oh, that reminds me of when i was a kid right or i smell you know there's a certain food you know a certain type of smell that you know that reminds me of things from my childhood or music would be a big sensory input right i heard this song on the radio from when i and that was you know one of my favorite songs in high school and it brings me back so those are what we call very direct you know, triggers of nostalgia. And, you know, that seems totally obvious. What I find more fascinating is a second class of triggers, which we call um, psychological threats. And I think that's more interesting because one, it's less obvious. And and two, it it really starts to reveal nostalgia's um, psychological functions. And, And so what we find is people are more likely to feel nostalgic in times in which they're experiencing negative emotions, particularly uh, emotions relevant to social 
to social issues and issues of meaning. So when people feel lonely, they become more nostalgic. And you know, before I mentioned the correlation versus causation angle, and this is one of the things that we've tried to address is to distinguish you know, correlation from causation. So we've now done a number of um, experiments to and demonstrated that it is in fact negative emotions that trigger nostalgia as opposed to nostalgia triggering um, negative emotions. So um, when you induce sadness in the laboratory or you induce negative affect in the laboratory, you find that people su- subsequently feel more nostalgic. When you induce a, a feeling of social exclusion or ostracism or loneliness in the laboratory, you find that people subsequently feel more nostalgic. When you induce some sense of meaninglessness or you know, provoke people to question the meaningfulness of their life, they, they subsequently respond with a heightened sense of nostalgia. So the second class of triggers seems to be these um, negative psychological states that people are turning to nostalgia to as a way to regulate you know, negative emotions and experiences. So on the psychological triggers, is the nostalgia just serving as a balm, right? Just like helping you feel better because you're sad or does it actually cause people to take action to improve their situation, right? So like you feel lonely, okay? I feel nostalgic for the time in high school and I had friends and everything was great. That can, that can just, you could just settle there. Like I feel better. You don't do anything about it. Or does nostalgia actually, okay, let me do something now so I can have friends now. That's actually been one of the most surprising and interesting um, developments in, in the research, I think, because originally, to be honest, I thought it was the former, that nostalgia just kind of made you feel good. So, and that, and that has value in itself, right? So you feel you're experiencing loneliness or a feeling of rejection or meaninglessness. And so you, you kind of retreat to these memories in the past that make you feel good. And it just, and that's an, and that, and that might be beneficial, right? Because if you feel good, then you might be, then there might be something else that comes into play that you're, you know, you're sort of more motivated to, to pursue as just as a function of getting a mood boost. And that's what, you know, that was kind of the original thinking is nostalgia just restores these, these positive feelings or, or reduces these negative feelings. But then what we found more recently, and I think is, is, is very fascinating is that nostalgia didn't just make people feel good. It actually mobilizes them or motivates them. And so it's kind of changed my, my thinking on nostalgia because I used to see nostalgia as this very past focused experience, right? After all, you're thinking about thinking about the past. So it seems like you're kind of retreating backwards into the past to feel better about the present. But I think a better description based on some of our recent research is nostalgia is you pulling the past to the present, not you retreating to the past. Like you, you're pulling the past to the present as a way to energize or mobilize yourself. And so we've now you know, published a number of studies showing that when people feel nostalgic, they actually indicate and, and behaviorally demonstrate a greater interest in meeting new people, of trying new things, of, of being more helpful to others feeling more energetic, of feeling more youthful. And so there does, it does seem to be the case that um, nostalgia isn't just a way to sort of kind of restore your feelings. It does seem to have um, motivational power. So you mentioned earlier this uh, idea of self-continuity. What is that first? And then how does nostalgia help with that? So self-continuity is the sense that even though I, of course, change 
over time, right? I have different life experiences and I grow and develop that. I have some sense of I'm, I have a sta- you know, I have some stable sense of self that I'm, you know, at some deeper level, I'm the same person I've always been, as opposed to I don't have any like stable sense of self and I'm all over the place. There seems to be, you know, some positive psychological benefits to having some sense of this sort of stability of self across time or kind of connection to self across time. And so the way nostalgia boosts this, the self continuity is it seems to be a way that people can bring to mind these experiences in life and weave them into a meaningful personal self story or self narrative that help that helps them feel like they have some kind of authentic or enduring, you know, sense of self, regardless of what, what happens, regardless of what happens to them in life. Gotcha. And I, th- I thought the, the really interesting section, this is what kickstarted your your entire research about nostalgia, is that nostalgia and sort of existential meaning, right? Um, so what is it about you know, feeling that existential angst, right? Like <laughs> my life is meaningless <laughs> that you know, makes people nostalgic or, and what causes people to, you know, some people to be nostalgic while others, like they go into the void, like they look into the abyss <laughs> and they never come back. So what's the difference between those two types of people? Yeah, that, that second question is, is really, is really interesting. So first of all, you know, I'll say that life is full of experiences that, you know, kind of challenge or our sense of, of meaning. I mean, you know, uh, we all experience loss and suffering and the world feels unfair. And ultimately, regardless of all the things we do to navigate the, you know, life, even if we have even best case scenario, we know that ultimately we're going to get older, frailer, weaker, everyone we love is going to die. And then so are we. Um, and so at the general level, nostalgia seems to be a way that people you know, can kind of build a storehouse of meaning, a warehouse of meaning, and you know, a bank of meaning. And when people are experiencing these states that, you know, these are these life events that sort of question the meaningfulness or cause them to, you know, to, to think about the potential meaninglessness of their existence, they can withdraw from the bank these meaningful memories and be like, oh yeah, but I've had these events in life. And, and so I know I've, despite what's going on now or despite what, what's going to happen to me, I've had good experiences. I've had my, you know, I've had my, my meaning. Um, and so that seems to be, that seems to be important, not just for allowing people to take some perspective about what's meaningful in their life, but also, you know, and touching on a previous point about motivation, it seems to be kind of an experience that, that, um, instigates the, you know, uh, kind of further efforts for meaning. And what I mean by that is you can imagine say, well, life, life feels meaningless right now. And that challenges your sense of confidence, right? As, and then you think back nostalgically and you're like, yeah, but I've had all these successes and, and great experiences in my life that made me feel meaningful. And if I had them back then, even though I'm going through a hard time right now, maybe I can have them again. So nostalgia seems to boost your existential confidence too, that you can, you know, that you, what you might be going through right now is tough, but there's, there's going to be future opportunities um, for meaning. We, you know, sometimes we refer to this as, as anticipatory nostalgia, which is a lot of times we plan, we have goals and ideas that we're, we're hoping for in the future 
because we know that we had meaningful versions of them in the past. I think vacations is a, is a very good example. So you might be, there might be things on your bucket list that you really, really want to do, right? And you want to do them in part because you think they'll be meaningful. Like, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, to go to Yellowstone or to, you know, go to Alaska or whatever it is that you, that you, that you want to do. But part of the reason you think that might be meaningful is because at some level you can you have memories from your past that you had you know you might have not done those exact same things but you remember hey I remember when my parents took us here and that was really awesome and that was really special and now I want to recreate that or make a new version of that. And so I think that that's how nostalgia helps us deal with the the existential meaninglessness uh, issue. That's like that's why I stress myself out every Christmas because I'm like, <laughs> I'm creating memories here, people. <laughs> yeah, that is the. But you're touching on an important, I think, an important issue that we need we need to think about, which is you can overdo it, right? Or you can fixate too much on the importance of something that, uh, that robs you of just living and enjoying the more experiential component of it. So I do think there are some. You know, it's not just the case that this is always positive, right? We have to we have to think about that. That's the that's the message of Christmas vacation with Chevy <laughs> yeah. Chase. Right? <laughs> He's tried too hard. So yeah. So what causes some people to you know go to nostalgia as a as a as a way to as a reservoir for this existential void, while others don't do that and they you know might go to a really really bad place? Yeah. So I think there's a few a few possibilities. One is we know that their nostalgia does have trait-like characteristics. And what I mean about that is just like some people are more neurotic than others and some people are more extroverted than others, um, some people are more nostalgic than others. So there is just kind of a stable personality characteristic of nostalgia that people vary on. Like all of us can experience nostalgia and have some understanding of it, but some of us are more nostalgic than others. And so that seems to be um, one dimension, which is some people just, um, and it's not to say that the people who aren't nostalgic are going to just retreat to the void, experience, you know, embrace the void, um, but, it, but it might indicate um, that nostalgia is not, is not as likely of a strategy for them when they're grappling with meaning. They might turn to other things for meaning, but maybe not as much nostalgia. So that's one part of it. Um, another part of it is, I think, just individual differences and in, in people's um, personal comfort with, you know, the, the void, so to speak. So there does seem to, you know, one of the other areas of research I'm, I'm involved in right now is looking at individual differences in the need for meaning. Now, at some level, like just like the need to belong um, or, you know, our social needs, everyone has some, you know, some level of need for meaning. Everyone needs to feel important and that their life has some kind of value or purpose at some level, but that people also seem to differ, differ on this. Some people are really, really high in this need. Some of the research that, you know, some of the recent research we've done on this suggests, for instance, that people that are high in need for meaning tend to be more religious and, and hold more supernatural beliefs, um, for example. And so, one possibility is that you know there are just some people that are more comfortable with the idea that there is no ultimate meaning or there is no true true meaning beyond the meaning that I might make, and so some people just might be more comfortable, um, you know, or might be find it less distressing to look into the void. Now, the third thing that you know, third and final thing I'd note, which you touched on a little bit too, is that's distinct 
from from meaningless that might be um, bad for people's mental health is you know as you kind of hinted at because some people might stare into the void and be like hey my life is meaningless whatever I there's still a new Star Wars movie coming out I still like you know <laughs> I still like Starbucks and you know then you know some people just might be a little bit more comfortable with that right right but I think the problem is a lot of people aren't and if they don't have you know I'd say the majority of people aren't. In fact, I think it's a very small percentage of the population that's probably fully able to embrace without any real um, psychological distress the you know the the total potential insignificance of their existence. Um, so for everyone else who who um, who isn't like that, who wants meaning, if you know, if not nostalgia or if not something else, I mean, there are people do experience. One of the predictors of the depression is a lack of meaning. One of the predictors of, of suicide is a lack of meaning. One of the predictors of addiction and other forms of of risky and problematic behavior is the feeling that life is life is um, meaningless. So there does seem to be this kind of pathological component of a lack of meaning. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what the answer is um, for those people um, because we largely haven't studied nostalgia from that kind of more clinical perspective. We've studied that as more just a normal life experience. And, and that actually touches on an important issue um, that I like to bring up a lot. And I think we need to do a better job of, of, of being transparent about in psychology, which is it's a lot easier to identify and study phenomena or people or experiences as they naturally exist and and then to kind of experimentally move that around a little bit just to understand a phenomena like nostalgia it's a lot harder to develop interventions that can dramatically change people if that makes sense yeah that makes sense um, you also highlight research that nostalgia can actually have physiological response i mean I've, I've seen this research before where they'll go to a nursing home and they'll make the nursing home pretty much look like how it looked when the residents were in their prime, in their 20s. And like, instead of shuffling the old people, like, they get a little pep in their step. So, I mean, that's another benefit. But I'm curious, in your research, have you found any, like, is there a dark side to nostalgia? Like, we've been talking about the benefits. Are there any downsides to experiencing nostalgia? So, I think there certainly are possible downsides. One would be an overuse of nostalgia. Now, we don't really, we haven't you really figured this out in terms of research, but it, you know, it, it seems to be you know, pretty obvious at some level that almost anything that's good for you or can be bad for you or almost anything that's good for you can be bad for you. Right. So, you know, use the parallel, use the parallel example of exercise. Like everyone would say, Hey, exercise is good for you, but we know, you know, that people, some people over exercise, or compulsively exercise. And so, you know, I'd say similarly, if you are, if you're so fixated on nostalgia that it's preventing you from living in, you know, the present or engaging in other future oriented opportunities or experiences, then that would be, you know, that would be a problem. In addition to that, you know, there is some, some recent research on, what we would call group or collective nostalgia, which you know, which seems to have some positive and negative benefits. And what I mean by that is, you can imagine nostalgia for a group 
you're part of, right? So um, you can say, hey, I have nostalgia for I have nostalgia for being an American or nostalgia for um, being, you know, when I was in college or something like that. And that has, you know, that has many benefits because group level nostalgia makes you feel connected and part of something bigger than yourself, right? It gives you um, some commitment to your in-group. But the problem, of course, is that it also runs the risk of um, making you less um, focused or less open to outgroups or to you know people that aren't part of that group. And so I think one of the things that you know that warrants further investigation is the extent to which a nostalgia can, while increasing some kind of group harmony, perhaps a collective nostalgia, could also um, contribute to to intergroup conflict. And there just isn't a lot of, you know, like I said, there's research on the benefits of, of group nostalgia, but there isn't a, there isn't really much research on the potential consequences. So as I was reading your book, I was thinking, okay, there's all these great benefits of nostalgia. I want I want some more nostalgia <laughs> in my life. Have you? all found like are there ways you can indu- I mean you've been able to induce nostalgia in the lab by making people feel sad <laughs> it's so funny that that's what you guys do it's like, <laughs> we're gonna make you feel lonely and excluded and sad so we can test this yeah. thing but are there I mean you mentioned the sort of the direct triggers right music pictures etc I mean are there ones that you find that you know without fail typically induce some sort of nostalgic feeling in people Music seems to be really big it seems and you know there there might be different reasons why just from an experimental or laboratory point of view music might be a really good induction just cuz people like it and it's engaging I mean a lot of times when you do these studies in the lab you're bringing people in and you know it's not the most interesting thing for them to do <laughs> but you give them a chance to listen to music that makes them nostalgic or oftentimes in our, you know, to make sure we have good controls in our control conditions. We also have them listen to music that they really, really like or enjoy. So it's equally um, engaging, but it's music that they've only recently, only recently heard. And so that way it's not, you know, it's not associated with the past for them, but that seems to be powerful, you know, so that just from the engagement part of it, but even beyond the laboratory, I would, I would, propose that music is a particularly powerful um, source of nostalgia because it seems to be that all of us have, or many of us have a, almost like a soundtrack to our lives, um, right? We can think about the times from our youth in particular where there were certain bands we liked. In fact, there, you know, there's some research on this that people tend to favor products consumer products, whether it's movies or musics that, um, that came, or even fashion, um, that came from their, from their youth. And that seems to be the time in which you really start to develop these because you start to become an independent person, right? That's the time when you're, when you're adolescent and teen and young adult, that's when your identity is really forming and you're distinguishing yourself from just being some kid in your family. Um, you're becoming an, you know, kind of an autonomous person and there's, there's music associated with that, right? Um, and so for me, it would be the, the, you know, the early 1990s, right? That's when I was in, 
you know, in high school and college. And so um, I have a particular, I like new music, uh, uh, of course, but I have a particular, you know, affinity towards music from the 90s. What were your favorite bands from the 90s? Oh man, you wouldn't believe it because this is just an audio show, so you can't even see it, but I'm wearing a Nine Inch Nails shirt as we we speak. I was a big, I was a big Nine Inch Nails fan. I was, but I was a big, um, I guess what they would, what we called back then grunge and, and, you know, alternative music. So Pearl Jam, um, Soundgarden, Allison, you know, I was a big Allison Chains fan. Um, all those, all those sorts of band, kind of rock alternative bands. Um, you know, I actually liked some, and I still like, um, you know, kind of punk music, but that was, you know, that kind of hit its prime, um, before a little bit before my time. But when I was in high school and I had, you know, a little bit of cash and could buy, you know, CDs, my, you know, and develop my own music taste. It was that, you know, that grunge alternative sort of moment. That's funny. Yeah. For me, it was like, I listened to like ska and punk. The thing is though, I don't enjoy listening to that music now as a 30 year old. Like, I'm just like, I can't, no, I can't do it. I've tried it. I'm like, I want to feel nostalgic. I want to put in some less than Jake (laughs) or some real big fish. I'm like, okay, no, I can only do one song. Yeah, it's so weird. So what what do you, so what's your, what do you listen to? Just more contemporary stuff? Yeah, I mean, contemporary stuff, I listen to, uh, you know, I like Frank, I like the pop standards, like I like Frank Sinatra. I like, I've always liked swing music, sort of jazz from the 30s and 40s. That's been sort of consistent from when I was a kid until today. I still like that. But, and then today I I do enjoy just poppy poppy pop music pop rock music so you really are a historic when you say you're you have historical nostalgia yeah you yeah. really do it's really weird i think and i i don't know why i think my mom might have had a lot to do with it she was you know she loved watching old movies and of course i had to watch old movies too so it's probably because i'm nostalgic for that stuff because like that's what i grew up with it's not because i yeah. i mean I, I did experience it directly in an indirect way if that makes sense yeah no i think that and i you know i think that will that is an area of research that i haven't fully jumped into but i think that that's i think that's a really really cool area i've talked about this with some of my graduate students actually of trying to figure out this um the con- the historical continuity of nostalgia of like trying to figure out a way to identify if some of our tastes and preferences um and our nostalgia for them are linked to things that were passed down to us from, you know, so if your parents listened to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, for instance, like did that, how did that influence, um, influence your taste? I think, and, and, and what's the, and what's the function of that? I mean, we're talking about music, but you can imagine this in all sorts of cultural contexts. Like you could imagine saying in cooking, for instance, we hear people say, well, this is my grandma's recipe, right? And so I think that, and oftentimes if you watch cooking, you know, cooking shows or cooking documentaries, which, you know, my wife always makes me watch these cooking documentaries on Netflix, you'll see these famous chefs and they'll, and they'll often say, yeah, well, when I was growing up, my grandma made this or my mom made this and they might have a new version of it, but there is that um, core of it. And, you know, I think that's actually a, that's actually an important part of nostalgia that we don't think about in terms of entertainment and, and, and consumer products and trends and, and, and things like that is that a lot of times nostalgia works the best, it seems, or it's the most creative when people aren't just perfectly trying to replicate something from the past, but are able to extract its core 
its core themes and then do something new, take a new spin to it. And this happens all the time in music. You can identify elements that are that are influenced by um, by the past, but then they go in a new direction. And I think this where you can really see this is in in, in movies. A lot of times in movies, the difference between a nostalgia, a movie that just is trying to like bank on nostalgia in the most superficial way is oftentimes totally criticized and panned and people hate it because they love the original so much. And they just see it as a total, you know, people just trying to cash in on nostalgia. The movies that seem to really be able to be successful and pay tribute, or, you know, to the past are the ones that pull the, you know, pull the themes out of it that are important and that honor and honor the past, but then do something, you know, do something totally new or move in a new direction. Right. I feel like the Western genre does that really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, a lot of the good modern Westerns are still really good. They hold up to the other one. Yeah. I think about, you know, my kids are probably going to be nostalgic for the killers because that's what we pretty much listen to. No. Oh, yeah. Killers yeah. are great. Yeah. yeah. I love, love the killers. And they're actually doing some nostalgia. Like you hear some like, you're listening, like that's a little bit of Bruce Springsteen, 19, you know, 80, right? So it's, uh, they're doing the same thing. Well, I mean, th- there's so much more we could talk about. I'd, where can people learn more about your work? Not just on nostalgia, but also just the psychology of being animals that have to grapple with temporal existence. Yeah, so uh, if you, I, I have a website. It's just clayrutledge.com, so it's pretty simple. And, you know, I, I have descriptions and links to a lot of my research and and also um, links to I've done you know writing for you know from a number of different outlets ranging from Scientific America to the New York Times to uh, Wall Street Journal. You can see all that on my website, and I, I I wrote a TED Ed lesson. So if you're if you want something that's like five or six minutes, and you like cartoons, um, I, you know there's a little there's a little TED Ed video. I mean I think it's linked on my website. So I think that's probably the the best place to find me. Um, I'm also on on Twitter. I don't, you know, necessarily tweet about nostalgia per se, but a, a lot of times about the areas of, of research and issues I'm interested in. Fantastic. Well, Clay Rutledge, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure for me as well. My guest today was Clay Rutledge. He is a psychology professor at North Dakota State University, the author of the book Nostalgia. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at ClayRutledge.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash nostalgia, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, if you've got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please share the show with a few of your friends. It's one of the best ways to get the word out about the show. The more, the merrier. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.
Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.